If you are with us for the first time or you haven't been in a while, the whole 90 skit thing, you're probably like, what is that? Uh, we are in the middle of a message series we've entitled 90, and we've been journeying through the life of Jesus. But I was just thinking before, um, before we get started this morning, I was thinking about several professions in our world that don't get enough credit. Um, I think one of the unsung heroes in our culture are people, men and women, uh, who are EMTs, uh, emergency medical technicians. We have several in our congregation. And these, uh, these people, I mean, whether you have been involved with a 911 situation or not, um, you can call 911. They show up on the scene. And they don't know what to expect. They ask questions and get information, whether it's true or incorrect, oftentimes scary places they're called to step into. And what they don't do is ask what the, uh, the, the victim, the trauma victim, what, if they were at fault. They don't try to assign blame. They just assess the situation, and they get to work, and they save the day. And I just think we don't give them enough credit. And it's pretty remarkable. Uh, we're in the middle of a series. We're following Jesus from the days that he stepped onto the pages of history as an adult on the banks of the Jordan River to the moment in time where he served as the Savior of all mankind. And we've said throughout this series, and the thing that we hope away, we hope that you take away with you, is that Jesus didn't come to continue something that had begun long ago. He didn't come to <clears throat> bring about Judaism 2.0. He didn't come to complete the Bible. Jesus came to establish a brand new relationship between God and man. He came to establish a brand new covenant. And he came to give us an overarching ethic for our relationships and how we deal with money and our whole lives. Um, and he refers to this as our new command. And then he came to begin a brand new movement, which we call the church. And when he, show, when he showed up in history, he immediately drew a crowd and he disturbed the status quo. And where most people who followed Jesus at the time thought he was a continuation of something old, maybe just a rabbi with a new spin on the Torah, um, maybe he was going to bring some kind of temple reform, there was another group who understood that this Jesus from day one was a troublemaker, and he came to disrupt the status quo. And he was introducing not an add-on, not a continuation of, but something brand new. And this group that knew this, they controlled the temple. They controlled the temple system and the people in it, especially uh, in uh, first century in Galilee and Judea. And when Jesus was eventually arrested, one of the things they accused him of was inciting rebellion among the people. Because Jesus claimed that something greater than the temple was coming, that the temple would be made obsolete. See, the temple as we know, or we may not know, that the temple was the epicenter of Jewish life. It was the sacred space where they housed the Torah, the law, uh, where God in some way resided. And if something was greater than the temple, then maybe the temple was no longer necessary. And, and Jesus predicts that something greater than the temple was here and that soon the sacred would be commuted. Sacred was always a space in the first century sacred men and sacred places doing sacred things. And Jesus was letting the world know that soon the sacred would be commuted. It would be commuted to the hearts and minds and the consciousness of people. 
that there would be no more sacred spaces or sacred places because there would be nothing more sacred than the person sitting right next to you, the person you work with, the children you are raising, the person you've committed your life to, the person that makes you crazy, right? Because the Spirit of God was going to leave the temple and inhabit the hearts and the lives of people. And when that happened, everything changed. And as a model teacher, Jesus modeled with his followers, showed his followers what it would look like to regard others as sacred. He would spend time with untouchable people. Um, He would touch the untouchable people. If someone had coronavirus, he would be up in their face. You know, He, he, he would invite a tax collector, a traitor to the nation, to be one of his followers. He would even go to his home, and Peter would be like, wait a second, uh, Jesus, uh, he's, I don't know about this. You know, if he's going to follow you, maybe I'm going to unfollow you because I just don't understand. But Jesus is like, no, 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 the sacred is about to be commuted. This disturbing of, this, of the peace and the disruption of the status quo was certainly threatening to some people. But as we're going to discover today, it was intriguing to some people as well. You know, most assume that Jesus' endgame was to declare himself as king. Um, that he would march into Jerusalem, probably around Passover, and that he would, he would like tear off his rabbinic robe and he'd have like a giant M on his chest, like, ah, oh, Messiah, and he would like be the new king and, and somehow overthrow Rome and the Jewish people would once again be in charge. But the more discerning who listened to Jesus sensed that something else was up with him because He spoke with extraordinary authority, but he refused to take charge. And you'll see this when you follow Jesus. He won the crowd, but refused the crown. He had extraordinary power and influence, but over and over, he refused to leverage that power and influence for his own sake. He was a very intriguing man, for sure. This morning, we're going to look at what the gospel writer John uh, has to say about that. He tells a story of Nicodemus, and it says this. He says, now there is a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And I'm going to stop there. The Jewish ruling council was also called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the parliament, the Vatican, and the Supreme Court all rolled into one. Um, Nicodemus said he was a Pharisee. He'd probably risen through the ranks of Jewish politicians Um, to become a man of influence, because now he's a Pharisee who's also a member of the Jewish ruling council. And they represented Israel to Rome. Um, And there were between like 20 and 70 men who served on this council. And so what's interesting here too, and we've been talking about this, is that John, the writer John, actually gives his name, Nicodemus, because what he's saying to his first century reader is like, listen, you can fact check me. You know there's a Sanhedrin. And I'm going to give you the guy's name. His name is Nicodemus. You can go back and look. I'm giving you his name. And then he tells us this about Nicodemus. He says, he came to Jesus at night. And that's a very interesting fact. He didn't have to put that in there. Why did he put in there that he came to him at night? Was it because his schedule was really busy and that was the earliest he could get in to see Jesus? Or maybe, just maybe, it was because this troublemaker Jesus, maybe Nicodemus didn't want to be seen with Jesus. You know, maybe he wanted to remain hidden in the night so that no one would see that he was speaking to the troublemaker. 
So Nicodemus shows up with Jesus, and we know he's got a question, right? He comes to Jesus at night, so important. He comes to him, he says, um, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And this is a, a remarkable admission, Rabbi, which is a title of respect, we know, he's representing a people group, so they're talking about him. There's people who know. We know you're a teacher who's come from God. He's like, you know, I know you don't fit into a box. You're not very Messiah-like, but there's something we can't deny, that you've come from God. And we know that, and it's not because of what you say or just what you're teaching, because no one could perform the signs you were doing if you were not from God. And this is important to, uh, to note as well. Um, we think of, of some of the things that Jesus did as miracles, but when people were paying attention, they understood that when Jesus healed people and when he fed people, he wasn't just doing miracles. Every single one of Jesus' healings and supernatural acts was actually a sign, a sign's point. It was a sign pointing in a direction. And Nicodemus was an educated man. We know this because he's a Pharisee. And he understood these things that Jesus was doing. It wasn't just meeting needs. There was a method to this, and it was going somewhere. And it was clear to him that these signs are pointing in a direction. Clearly, these signs are from God. Um, and this is just like the introduction, right? He's finally got to Jesus. It's just an introduction to the question he's come to ask. And I can imagine he sets it up, you know, and he, maybe he pauses, take a break, and then Jesus responds. And Jesus, as Jesus does, doesn't uh, answer or reply the way that we expect him to. <laughs> um, it says, so I can see, like, maybe Nicodemus, like, says it, and he kind of waits, and Jesus maybe puts his hand on his shoulder or something, and he's like, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, I know why you're here, and I know what your question is. Let me just get to the bottom line. We're both busy, you know, and you don't want, even want to be seen with me anyway. He says, I tell you, no one can see God, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. But imagine, this is so confusing for Nicodemus because Jewish people in the first century, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel were the same thing, right? So, so Jesus tells him he won't even recognize the kingdom of God. I'm sure Nicodemus is confused because he's like, I was born into that kingdom. Like, what do you mean? I won't recognize it. I was born into it. And, and, and Jesus says, no, you have to be born again. Or literally what that means is born from above. And at this point, I think um, when we read it, I think Nicodemus might be like giggling or thinking that Jesus is messing with him because he asks Jesus, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their, mother, into their mother's womb and be born. I mean, he, he knows it isn't literal, but he doesn't know what Jesus is saying. I mean, can you imagine hearing this for the first time, to be born again? I mean, the imagery of crawling back into your mother's womb, that is disgusting, right? I mean, uh, no, thank you. Um, I think what he wanted to say is like, Jesus, why are we talking about this? This is not what I came to talk about. I've got questions. People are at home waiting for me to give, come back with them with uh, some answers. And Jesus says, he answers, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. So he, he goes from no one can see, and then he changes it to say no one can enter. But they won't even recognize it unless they are 
born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Jewish people have Jewish people. Philistines have Philistines. Romans have Romans. Greeks have Greeks. Kansans have Kansans, right? Flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh got you, got him into the kingdom of Israel. Congratulations. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. There's something more. It takes something else. You can be born into the kingdom of Israel, but it takes something more to be given entrance into the kingdom of God. And then, and then Jesus gives him another illustration. He's like, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. And I think Nicodemus is like, oh my gosh, where is he going with this? You know, am I ever going to get to my question? Um, and then Jesus continues. He says, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And this is a little wordplay here because Jesus uses the same word for wind and spirit. He says, the spirit's like the wind. You know there's wind. You see the effects of it. You hear it. You don't know where it came from. And it's the same thing with the spirit of God. And what he's getting at with Nicodemus in this very, in this first century uh, Jewish context, he says, Nicodemus, I understand. You know, many years ago, God made a promise to Abraham, right? He, he made a promise that he would give him a, a nation and, and, the, and that all would be blessed through this nation. And Jesus and Nicodemus both were living in that promise as Jewish men. They were part of that kingdom of Israel. And then God, through Moses, made this covenant with, with the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and gave them all the commandments and all the rules. But here, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he's saying, God is not exclusive. He's like the wind. He's like spirit. He moves outside the confines of our covenant with him. And yes, while we are locked into an arrangement with God, God is not limited by this arrangement. God is the mobile God. He doesn't live inside the temple. He's spirit. And our nation, our Israel, is a means to an end. And in the end, the entire world will be given an invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God. And there will be people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And this, this invitation will be extended to everyone. But entrance into the kingdom of God requires a second birth, a spiritual birth. And Nicodemus, at this point, has no category for this. This is brand new. He doesn't even know what to think about this. He says, how can this be? How can this be? And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? You're one of the, the top teachers. Everybody's looking at you for guidance. And so that's, uh, that's verse 10, and they, they, the conversation continues. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. Nicodemus is bewildered, but he's not resisting. He just he can't wrap his mind around what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus gets to something that's common ground. He finds a common place to go with Nicodemus and uh, something Nicodemus can latch onto. He says, um, just as Moses, and I think Nicodemus is like, oh, wow, Moses, I know. Okay. I know Moses. Moses is the covenant maker. He's the lawgiver. Um, he came down from the mountain, and, and God entered this brand new exclusive relationship with Israel. He got the commandment thing. He's like, okay. So, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, 
And for Nicodemus, very common story. He would know this from his childhood. It was a story of um, the nation going from Egypt to the promised land, crossing the desert, and there's tons of snakes, and people are getting bit, and some of the snakes are poisonous, and people are sick, and some are dying. And then this crazy thing where Moses makes this bronze snake, and he puts it on a pole, and he raises it, and they walk through the area, and the people are saved. So this is a story. Nicodemus totally gets the story. And then Jesus says, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, like the bronze snake on the pole. Now, once again, I'm sure Nicodemus paused and thought, hold on a second. Son of Man is code for Messiah. Son of Man, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, for a long time, If you put a man on a pole, like that snake, clearly that man is cursed by God. And when a man hangs from a tree, or a man is paled on a pole, or a man is hoisted up on a Roman cross, that's a sign of a curse. Are you telling me the son of man, the Messiah, is going to suffer? The Messiah is going to be cursed by God? And then Jesus continues and he says that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. That everyone will have access to eternal life in him. And this is different because eternal life meant keeping the Torah. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was eternal life. You keep the commandments. You do what God asked them to do on Mount Sinai. What does this mean? Everybody has access to the kingdom of God? They're going to get eternal life because the Messiah is going to be put on a pole, signifying he's cursed. Let's just pause for just a minute uh, on Nicodemus and Jesus. I'm going to come back to it in a second. But um, something I want to point out, when we read the Gospels, it's important for us to remember that much of Jesus' teaching didn't make sense until after the resurrection, right? Much of what he taught They were clueless of because it hadn't happened yet. You know, these events actually happened in history that we read about. Matthew was an eyewitness. Mark, who spent time with Peter. Luke, who thoroughly investigated all these things. John is an eyewitness. They're documenting what they saw and what they experienced, or they're documenting what eyewitnesses saw and experienced. They're documenting documenting this after the story is completely over with. I mean, I I used to envision when I was uh, younger and hadn't studied the Bible as much that they walked around with like a pen and paper like as things were going on, but we know that's not how it happened. They're they're writing this after it's happened. And so every once in a while, the writers will write a story and they'll pause and they'll make comments about what's happening behind the scenes, Right? And we do this all the time. We're like in the middle of a story, and you're walking through what happens, and you'll say, hold on, you know, he or she didn't know what was happening, or they didn't realize what was about to come. And we we base that comment based on what the audience, which you don't know at the time, until you get to the end of the story. So um, I'm going to give you an example of this. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke is quoting Jesus. He says, uh, Jesus says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And then Luke hits pause, and he adds this comment. But, and this is Luke's words, not Jesus' words. 
He says, but they did not understand what this meant, right? So Jesus says, listen carefully. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. And Luke's like, hold on. They didn't understand what this meant because they hadn't gotten to the end of the story yet. But Luke, who knows how things end, he wants his audience to know as they're reading so it has more impact what's going to happen. And then he jumps right back into the story. And we do this all the time. And it's important and, and, and why we need to take the gospel uh, stories so serious. I mean, this wasn't the way that stories were written when people wrote fiction. This actually happened. When you read all the details and the names and the ins and outs, this was not written decades and decades and decades after the fact. It was written exactly like someone who was trying to get all of the facts out and at the same time keep everyone engaged in the story. So when we get to John, when he's telling about this conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus, and he pauses the story to make sure those of us who are reading, those of us who are hearing this story, understand what's going on. Because not only did Nicodemus not know what Jesus was getting at, John, who was there at that same time, didn't know what Jesus was getting at either. Because Jesus was pointing to something that hadn't happened yet. Nobody had a category for this, a suffering, dying, stuck-on-a-pole Messiah. Nobody was looking for that. Nobody was waiting for that. In fact, that's a bad ending, right? So John pulls out temporarily to put two and two together for his readers. And these aren't Jesus' words in this, in this story here. Um, John tells us in his own words what Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus, who couldn't possibly understand because it hadn't happened yet. But for John, what he realized later... Um, when he looked back on this conversation, he realized how important this conversation was. And he doesn't want you to miss it, and he didn't want his readers to miss it either. Because what happens next, John writes, John dictates or writes these 26 words that would reverberate around the world from generation to generation these 26 words would survive the Roman Empire. They would survive the temple way beyond his generation. They would change the world that his friend had come to save. He pauses the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and like he's pausing to say to you and what he's saying to me, and I want you to understand this. You see, he wrote these words in Greek, which don't mean anything to us in this room. But he says this, he says, you see, for God so loved the world. I don't want you to wait till the end of the story. I want you to understand what he's trying to say to Nicodemus. It's so important. For God so loved the cosmos, the whole world that he gave, and he hasn't given it yet. That's why Nicodemus can't figure it out. Nobody can figure out how the Messiah is going to suffer and die. But it says that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in, not, um, not whoever believes that, not whoever has a bunch of information or facts, but it's believe in, trust in, whoever believes. And there's no Greek word for trust, it's just believe. Will not perish, will not be lost, but will have eternal life. And he had no idea. He had no idea what those words would do for us. And it's really important, especially if you've left the church for any amount of time, or if you're not a Christian, or you think that the Bible is just full of a bunch of mistakes. 
in this moment, John is not writing the Bible. In this story, John's not writing the Bible. The Bible doesn't show up till the fourth century when all these documents get put together and bound and put in a gold foil and folder. John's not writing the Bible. John's a man who saw things, witnessed things that would blow our minds. And at the end of the story, he knows he's got to document it because he's one of the few people who was there for all of it. And he doesn't want the story written in Aramaic, and he doesn't want it written in Hebrew. He wants it written in Greek. And you know why he wants it in Greek? Because that was the language of the empire. And John seemed to know more than anybody else that this is a message for the whole world. So let's make sure it's in a language for the whole world can understand. For God so loved the world he gave. And then John said, so these are John's words, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God didn't send the Messiah into the world to judge the world, to line up all the sinners and tell them all of the things they've done wrong. He didn't come to the scene of an accident and lecture those who had been injured. You know, I've done that. The church has done that. Maybe you've done that. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world but to save the world through him. He showed up like an EMT, and he just went to work. And when he realized that the world needed a blood transfusion, he gave his own. And suddenly, we're thrown back to day one when John the Baptist on the banks of the river, everybody's waiting, and John says what? He says, look, there he is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And John is writing, he's like, oh man, we should have seen it. We should have seen it. We should have put two and two together. And he writes the story and he's like, I want to make sure they get it before they get to the end of the story. For God so loved the world that he gave. See, when you love someone, you give. And he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, not just believes that, You know, you don't become a Christian because of faith. You become a Christian because all of the evidence points to the fact that Jesus was and is who Jesus claims to be. Because placing your trust in Jesus, that is how you get connected to the uh, the kingdom of God. That whoever believes in him won't be lost, won't perish, but we have eternal, full life, abundant life. You won't fall away. You won't get lost in the shuffle. You'll be born, as Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus, you'll be born again into a brand new family, adopted with your heavenly Father. And many of us have memorized John 3.16 at some point in our lives or another. And a great way to pare it down is this, God love, God gave, we believe, we receive. God loves, so he gave, that's what we do when we love. What do we do in response to that? We're supposed to believe. We're supposed to trust in. And then we receive eternal life. It starts with God. God loved, God gave. We believe, we receive. Getting into the kingdom of God is not about do. It's about done. He did all the heavy lifting. And he says, it's an invitation that I'm inviting you to accept. And that is great news. I want to get back real quick, back to Nicodemus and Jesus for just a minute. 
And we don't know exactly what happened after that conversation with Nicodemus. I mean, he kind of wanders off, and I think he probably gets home with his wife and everybody there, and, and they're asking him, like, how'd it go? You know, did you get all your questions answered? And he's like, no. <laughs> Uh, something about the Messiah is going to die, and there's a poll, and everyone gets in, and I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. But eventually, Nicodemus gets it, and here's how we know. Because after Jesus is crucified, they imagine uh, Nicodemus is in the back of the crowd. And we know he's there because he's part of the Sanhedrin, and he's kind of responsible for this whole thing surrounding Passover. And he's in the back of the crowd. And put yourself in his shoes for just a minute. Imagine you're standing there, and all you see maybe are heads, the top of heads, this crowd, everyone's standing around, and he, he knows that Jesus has been erupted, arrested, and he knows that Jesus is from God. <clears throat> but this is not the ending that he expected. And then suddenly, lifted up in front of the crowd, he sees a cross, and there hangs Jesus. And I can imagine he's like, oh my goodness, cursed by God, abandoned by his own people. Not the end of the story any of us anticipated, but it is exactly what Jesus predicted to him. And when Jesus is dead, Nicodemus risks his reputation once again and possibly his life. And he and a guy named Joseph from Arimathea, we read in John 19, 38 through 41. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And they probably had to slip Pilate a few coins because um, it was against the law to bury the body of someone who was crucified. So we know something had to happen there. But it says that he was accompanied by Nicodemus. Now, Joseph was afraid of the Jewish leaders, but he's accompanied with the Jewish leader, Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. <clears throat> I think John gives us all these details. Like, you don't know, you don't think this story is true? Fact check me. Here are the names. They're people. They're real people. They were absolutely sure this man came from God, and it's not the end of the story we anticipated. But Nicodemus participated in Jesus' burial. And he did it without having to have all of his questions answered. He was intrigued by Jesus, and he knew enough to know that this man had had come from God. And maybe that's you. Maybe you have questions that you are just dying to know the answer to, and maybe they're keeping you from falling more in love with Jesus. Maybe your unanswered questions, the whys, the unanswered questions are keeping you from fully believing in Jesus or fully surrendering your whole life to Jesus, from putting your life at risk or putting your reputation at risk for following Jesus because of some unanswered question or fear or whatever it may be. 
You know, you'll always have questions. You'll always have questions. I will not have all the answers for you. But if you know that's you, if you know that there's something in you when you hear this story in your heart, something stirring, maybe it's been stirring in your heart for weeks or months and you, you've just kind of been waiting for that moment, maybe today is the day that you connect the dots. Maybe you'll do what Nicodemus eventually did or what millions and millions of people have done since then. God love, God gave, we believe, we receive. This invitation is open because God already loved and God already gave. It's already been done. Would you receive Jesus as your Savior? Would you put your full trust in him? Will you make this not just about coming to church on Sunday morning? Would you offer your whole life? Would you be willing to extend forgiveness to the sacred person right next to you? Or the sacred person in your life who you have been holding on resentment and hurt and pain and unwilling to forgive? Would you let today be the day that you lay it all down and say, Jesus, I trust you. What is God calling you to? I'm going to ask our music team to come forward as we continue and close out our morning. But if you would, um, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And if you're in here today and you've never made this commitment to follow Jesus, I invite you to pray with me. And in your hearts, if, uh, if you have have accepted Jesus or you walking with Jesus, you can pray in your heart as well. Prayer does not save you. Jesus saves you. Prayer is how we express our faith and our love. But if today you have been holding on um, to your own, your own wants, your own desires, and you haven't let Jesus in, you can pray this today that you can say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I give you my heart as Lord and Savior. I trust you. I believe in you. I want a life with you. And Lord, we know that as we sit here and we offer up these prayers, that it's not a magic, uh, a magic word. It's not a magic bullet. That you never promise this life is perfect or easy. That you promise that you will be with us in our hearts in this born-again, renewed life. And so we thank you for that promise. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the sacred people in our lives. Lord, for those in this room who are holding on to pain and hurt and resentment, God, I just pray that you give them the power through your spirit to forgive, to let, uh, to let go and let you do a mighty work in their lives. Lord, we offer all of this up this morning as our worship to you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. For those who are helping with our morning offering, if you would come forward. Each Sunday, a part of our worship, part of what we do as disciples of Jesus is we give financially back. We trust that a God who uh, owns everything, um, we trust this, we give him this space and this part of our lives is a way to say, God, 
um, we put you first, the first fruit of our life. And we use all of those resources to continue this work, this kingdom of God work here together as a body. And so I'm going to ask our ushers to pass the baskets this morning as we continue in worship.